Welcome to the fight with Teddy Atlas. For today's episode, we're going to be playing the first chapter of Teddy, Teddy's audiobook, Atlas, From the Streets to the Ring, A Son's Struggle to Become a Man. The book has exclusive in-between chapter conversations with Teddy where he shares more insight on stories from the book, <clears throat> along with the new stories not featured in the print book. If you enjoy the listen here, be sure to pick up the audiobook on either Audible, Amazon.com, or iTunes. If you don't already have Audible, which is Amazon's audiobook app, you can get Teddy's book for free with a 30-day trial. I use this product myself, and I love I love Audible. Uh, see the show notes for the link to the offer. Thanks for tuning in. Atlas from the streets to the ring. A son struggled to become a man. Teddy Atlas and Pete Olson, read by yours truly, me, Teddy Atlas. Chapter 1. Not all bruises are black and blue. Of all the people who have affected my life and influenced the choices I've made, none has been more important than my father. Dr. Theodore Atlas Sr. was legendary around Staten Island. A Hungarian Jew originally from the Bronx, he was the kind of doctor that doesn't exist anymore. He wore a bow tie and a rumbled old raincoat, and he drove an old wreck of a car to go on his house calls. He traveled all over the island, taking care of people no matter what time of day or night. If his patients couldn't afford to pay, he didn't charge them, and when he did, the most it would be was about $5. Sometimes they paid him with pies or cookies. In the 1970s, when I was a teenager, my mother started calling him Columbo, after the character in the TV show because of the way he dressed and because he always seemed distracted and preoccupied. Besides his medical practice, my father somehow found time to found and build two hospitals, Sunnyside and Doctors Hospital. He also built over 100 houses on Staten Island, including the two we lived in, a small one-family home and later a larger colonial that he built across the street, plus some Winn-Dixies and condos down south. Think of it. He was a doctor who owned a crane and a bulldozer, and on Sundays to relax after spending an 80-hour week practicing medicine and taking care of people, he bulldozed the empty lots on the hill where we lived so he could build houses. He even built a sewer system for the whole neighborhood. Because my father poured all of his time and energy and feeling into his work, my mother and I, my four younger siblings, Tommy, Mary, Todd, and Terrell, often felt shortchanged if not consciously, at least in our hearts. Maybe it was easier for him to express emotion towards his patients than his family. I don't know. Even today I run into people who were patients of his, and they all talk about how compassionate he was with them. But at home it was hard for him to show anything. He considered emotions a sign of weakness. I remember one time we were in the car, and he made fun of us kids for crying over something. He started going, wah in his loud, mocking way. After that, I never cried again, even many years later at his funeral. Of all the kids, I was always his favorite, which made for an odd kind of tension in the house. In some ways, it was like we were two families. One family was my mother, Tommy, Terrell, Todd, and Mary. The other family was my father and me. It wasn't as if I didn't have to work hard for his attention. I did. I showed an interest in science because he liked science. I'd get him to take me out on house calls with him, because that way I could be with him, spend time with him. 
You have to understand, this was a man who left the house every day at 6.30 or 7 a.m. and came home at 10.30 or 11 p.m. Any time that I got with him was time that I had to steal. He never asked me to go with him. I just went. Occasionally, he would get a call in the middle of the night, and I would hear the phone and wake up. By the time he was coming out of his room and down the stairs, I was sitting there ready to go. He would tell me to go back to my room, but sometimes he would give in, let me go with him. I remember going with him on New Year's Eve once, around 1964-65, for a maternity case. I must have fallen asleep in the doctor's waiting room. At midnight, one of the nurses woke me up. They were all pouring soda and champagne, saying your father just delivered the first baby of the new year. Half asleep, I joined the celebration, knowing that it was a special thing to be there, even if my father's full attention wasn't focused on me. My mother Mary suffered from my father's inattention more than any of us. She was Irish and very beautiful. She'd been Miss Staten Island in 1940. Part of the prize that went along with the honor was a screen test to Hollywood. But her mother, my grandmother, Helen Riley, called Gaga, the nickname I'd given her when I was young, had refused to let her go. That's for tramps, she said. Who knows what direction my mother's life would have taken if she had gone. I'm sure she thought about that over the years. My mother was the complete opposite of my father. Very social, talkative, outgoing, used to getting attention, and with a fondness for nice things. My father, meanwhile, was driving around in jalopies and wearing shoes until there were holes in them, caught up in his own world and his very different concerns. When my brother Todd died at the age of five, it pushed us all further apart. With some families, it might have helped draw them closer, not with us. Todd had been born retarded and with an enlarged heart, and my father, who read all the medical journals and was always up on all the latest procedures, felt that an open-heart surgery which was relatively new at the time, could help him. It was the kind of thing where if nothing was done, Todd would die by the time he was 16. So my father made the decision that he should have the operation. And he was there in the operating room watching when Todd died on the table. Years later, a woman named Sally Cusick told me that her daughter's baby had gotten sick later that same day. And my father had gone over to their house and treated the baby. When Sally Cusick found out that her daughter had called my father, she was upset. She said, you called Dr. Atlas? Didn't you know his son died today? Her daughter was devastated. I didn't know, she said. He came and he never said a thing. That was my father to a T. He never said a thing. My mother was devastated by Todd's death as she held it against my father that he had pushed for the operation. In the aftermath, she had what I would call now a breakdown. For a while, she was even taking a blanket down to Todd's grave and sleeping there. Truthfully, I don't remember much about that time, but I think about the irony of it, how in our family where feelings were neglected, this kid, my brother, had an enlarged heart, and it turned out to be a death sentence for him. There was a period after Todd died when my brothers and sister and I lived with relatives and friends. It was around that time that my mother's drinking really became a problem probably wouldn't be fair to lay the blame for her drinking on Todd's death or my father's neglect, since alcoholism ran in her family. But those things certainly didn't help. 10 o'clock on a Wednesday. I'm in my room, doing homework. From downstairs comes a scream. You bastard. You don't even care. 
I hear the sound of dishes being broken. I close my eyes, wishing it would stop. It keeps going, the yelling keeps going, the crash of dishes. Finally, a door slams, and there is silence. I go out of my room and down the stairs. My father comes out of the kitchen, looks at me. Dad, it's okay, go back to your room. He walks past me and up the stairs. I stand there for a moment, then go into the kitchen. The entire floor is covered with broken dishes. The overhead cabinets are open. I get some paper shopping bags out of the drawer by the sink and start picking up shards of china and crockery. By midnight, the kitchen is spotless. I've cleaned up all the evidence. The next day in school, I don't say anything to my friends. I don't want anyone to know. It's better if I keep it inside. By the time I was in my late teens, I was starting to get into trouble. At Curtis, the public high school, I was a decent student and I played on the football team. But I got into fights. I was an angry kid. I had this rage inside me that I didn't understand. Nobody in my family was getting what they wanted or needed. We were just splintered, all going off in our own directions. My father was extraordinary in so many ways, but he had been led by his own difficult childhood to keep everything bottled up inside, and it had become his cold, his sense of how everyone should be. This was the guy who stayed up all night reading books, who read so much he broke blood vessels in his eyes when he got older, but who only read nonfiction because he considered fiction a waste of time. Not that he didn't believe in the imagination or think about what was possible. It's just that he was of the opinion that going into places that didn't exist was for the most part a luxury and a weakness. The world was what it was in front of you, and everything else was frivolous. His own father had committed suicide. He never talked about it, and I didn't know about it until much later when my mother told my wife. From what I was able to learn, my grandfather was a gambler, and my grandmother threw him out of the house for gambling, and then he hanged himself. I'm sure my father held that against my grandmother in some ways, but at the same time, he respected her. She was a tough woman. She had three sons, and she told each of them what he was going to be when he grew up. Theodore, you're going to be a doctor. Eugene, you're going to be an orthodontist. Reynolds, you're going to be an engineer. And each of them became what she told them they'd become. My father once told me a story about how he was driving in a car with his mother to the hospital to see Eugene, the middle brother, who was undergoing in an emergency apodectomy. My father was driving fast, and the roads at that time were mostly dirt. The car went around a curve, and the door swung open, and my father's mother fell out. He didn't even realize it at first. When he finally did realize it and went back to get her, she didn't act the way most women would act. She got up out of a ditch and brushed off the dirt. When she opened the door of the car, all she said was, Theodore, are we lost? This was what formed him. He was a guy who, if you talked about certain things and he thought it was wasteful, he would tell you. He'd say, you're talking in too many words. In a way, he was almost like a machine. No emotions, just principle and action. He suppressed all his emotions, and he got very uncomfortable when anyone else, any of us, expressed ours. He couldn't handle it. The frustration of trying to get emotions out of a man like that was maddening. It was in part what drove my mother to drink and me to do the things I did. I was in my teens when I started hanging out with the kids down the hill in Stapleton, which was a rough section of town. 
There were housing projects down there, a needle park where all the drug dealers hung out, and plenty of ways to get yourself into trouble. I was still trying to get my father's attention, but in a different way than when I'd gone out on house calls with him, a much angrier way. I don't know if he was aware of the extent of it, but I was cutting school a lot. For a while, he used to force me to get up in the morning, and he'd drive me to school before he went to work. Maybe he didn't have the time or the patience to be a real parent and get involved in a more active way. He thought if he made me go, the rest would take care of itself. He didn't understand there was more to it. He didn't understand that, as a parent, it took more than throwing a glass of water on your son in the morning when he didn't wake up. He should have known something was wrong on a deeper level. As a doctor, he certainly knew that he had to do more than inject medicine into a patient, that he had to take time to talk to people to help them recover. But as a parent, he just didn't get that. Halfway through my senior year in 1974 or 1975, I stopped going to school entirely. I dropped out. I was hanging around with the Sullivan brothers down at Stapleton. I'd met Jeannie Sullivan first. He was about my age with the Irish gift of gab and funny, always making people laugh. One time he and I stole these little manila envelopes from a stationery store and filled them with oregano. Then we stood on the corner selling them as nickel bags of marijuana. We were so stupid. We stayed on the same block for hours until eventually some of the guys we sold them to came back. I mean, we were standing there three hours later in the exact same spot, and this car full of Puerto Rican guys drove up, and the driver threw the manila envelope in Jeannie's face. Who you guys think you're fucking with? Jeannie, who knew I was there backing him up, and by then I'd already developed something of a reputation as a street fighter, smiled and said, what's the matter? It wasn't any good? Don't you know you have to put it on a sausage before you cook it? These guys went nuts. One of them got out of the car and came at me. I wound up decking him. We were just lucky they didn't have guns. Later on, I got to be friends with Jeannie's brothers. There were five of them all together, and they even kind of adopted me. Even though they were screwed up in various ways, drugs and alcohol and other things, they were a family. They were together. I wasn't seeing the problems. I was just seeing that they were a family. Over time, I got really close to Billy Sullivan, who was about eight years older than me, 25 or 26, and who had a wife named Linda and two young kids in Jersey. Billy was a skinny guy, sharp-dresser, very charismatic and likable. He knew his way around. He taught me stuff like craps, blackjack. He had all the odds down, knew all the numbers, and I was impressed by that. We played craps with guys in the street. Billy was also a very good pool player. I was pretty good, but he was very good. And we'd go into bars and hustle money that way. There were other things that drew me to him. He had a good singing voice. I, I loved to hear him sing under the boardwalk. We'd be in a bar and I'd play it on a jukebox and get him to sing along with it. I'd say, sing, Billy, and he would. He got a kick out of the fact that I liked his singing. If anyone in the bar didn't appreciate it as much as I did, I'd tell him, you better start clapping and smiling or get the fuck out of here. I looked up to Billy. When I think about it now, I can see he was giving me something I wasn't getting at home, kind of interest and attention that I was starved for. He wasn't just a criminal either. There was this other side to him. He coached the Little League team in Stapleton, and he asked me to come down and watch. So I went one day, and there he was, standing in a third-base coaching box, wearing a uniform, talking to the kids. When he saw me, he winked. I'll never forget that. 
It had an effect on me, seeing him in that setting, watching him with those kids. Of course, he had to play the tough guy, too, so he said to me, I wish there was a line on this fucking game. My father and mother knew I dropped out of school, but they didn't say anything to me about it. Things were tense at home. I was heading in a bad direction. They knew it, or sort of knew it, but they weren't doing anything or saying anything. Anyway, I stayed away from them as much as I could. For a while, I crashed in Jersey with Billy and his wife and kids. His wife was pretty and blonde, but the marriage was up and down. He was robbing and stealing, and he had lots of bad habits on top of that, chasing women, drinking, and gambling. There was a pretty Spanish girl about my age with big breasts who was babysitting their kids. Billy wanted a banger, but it was too difficult with his wife in the house, so he told me I should. I actually did wind up messing around with her. I think he got a kick out of that. I mean, he seemed like a cool, tough customer, but on the inside he was just a wounded kid who needed someone like me looking up to him. I recognized that about him, even at that time, because I identified with him. Most of the things Billy did was self-destructive. He never really hurt anyone else. While I was staying in Jersey with him, we broke into a place in the middle of the night and robbed it. Billy always had some scheme or plan. All we have to do is break through this cinder block wall and we'll be in the back room of the store where they keep the night's receipts. So there we were in this back alley with all these tools, screwdrivers, crowbars, the wrong kinds of tools really, trying to hack and chisel our way through this wall. It took hours. At one point, Billy whacked my hand with a slap hammer and it started to swell up. When we finally crawled through this minuscule hole we'd made, it was like a scene from a movie. We were in the wrong place. It was a grocery store, but fuck it, we robbed it anyway. We took food and soda, and I guess they had a little bit of money too. I mean, I don't even remember what we got, but we got something. Billy was always deep into the book. He's always on the run from them. I gave him my share of our take so he could pay them off. The really funny part is that the cops actually tracked us down the next day and questioned us about it. They didn't think we did it, but they thought we might know something. They said, whoever did it, they were professionals. They bypassed the wires in the wall without setting off the alarm. That's why we know it couldn't be you fucking idiots. When they left, I said to Billy, there were wires in the wall? You didn't tell me there were wires in the wall. He was dying laughing. That cop was looking right at your swollen head saying, no way we could possibly have done it. And we're the fucking idiots? One night, Billy got a gun and we decided to rob a bar in Stapleton. It wasn't really as premeditated as that sounds. We were just looking to do something, and that's what we settled on. I didn't even know why I was doing this stuff. Billy knew what he was doing. He was robbing a bar. Me? I was just trying to fit in with him. I saw him as someone who cared about me, and I wanted to show him that I was worthy. Anyway, we went into this bar on Bay Street, and we were there for a while drinking, playing pool in the back room, and plotting our next move. This is what I mean. It wasn't even a plan. We were just trying to figure out what we were going to do. We knew we wanted to do something. Should we rob this fucking joint or what? It's still early. Let them get a little more cash in the till. Make it worthwhile. While we were discussing it, this guy Robert Holder showed up, picked up a pool cue, and joined us. I knew him a little. His brother Dallas had been involved with wise guys, got arrested, then flipped, and ended up going into the witness protection program. 
This was back in the days when the witness protection program wasn't as full as it is today. Now it's like the Holiday Inn. You can't get in. But in those days, it meant something. It was like, wow, the guy fucking disappeared. He ratted out the wise guys, and now he's gone. Anyway, Billy let this guy hold and know what we were doing, that we had a gun, and we're going to rob the place. I don't know what he was thinking, because this guy, whose brother was a rat, didn't even particularly like Billy. When Hoda went off to the bathroom, I said, what the hell are you doing? That's okay, Billy said. Don't worry about it. Come on, I'll buy you another drink. It was screwed up. If you're going to rob a place, you should rob it. Twenty minutes later, we were still bullshitting around when the cops came in. We were in the back room, they were in the front. But we could see them checking people out, looking around, moving in our direction. That motherfucker, Billy said, he gave us up. You sound surprised. Shit, the gun. Give it to me. They're going to nail us, Teddy. Give me the gun. In that moment, Billy looked very weak to me. Just a scared kid. I reached into his waistband and I took the gun. I could see he wasn't going to be able to handle going to jail. What are you doing, he said. But he didn't really try to stop me. When the cops came into the back room, they frisked me and found the gun. They wound up running us both in and taking pictures, fingerprints, the whole bit. My bail was set at $5,000 for the gun charge, but they let Billy out on his own recognizance. Here's the crazy thing. My father bailed me out the next day, and two nights later, I was down in Stapleton again, looking for trouble. I mean, really looking. I hooked up with another friend of mine this time, a guy named John, who'd been a football player and was a big, tough bastard bent on his own mission of self-destruction. John had been stabbed at a New Year's party and lost a kidney, and he was poisoning his remaining kidney with as much liquor as he could drink. The basic plan for the night was for us to make some money. But as I say, there were obviously underlying issues driving each of us that we were too disconnected from ourselves to recognize. We started out in Techies Bar on Gordon Street, across the street from the projects. Techies was one of our regular hangouts, just a small neighborhood drinking bar with a shuffleboard machine and a pool table. There was a friend of mine there, a guy named Nipple, who had a gun, and I just came straight out and I told him, give me the gun. What are you going to do? I need it, I said. There was no question the idea of giving me his gun made him nervous. I made a lot of people nervous at that point in my life because they knew whatever I did, I would really do. I was dangerous. I wasn't a bad kid, but I was dangerous because I was righteous about what I was doing. I thought what I was doing had a purpose to it, though I doubt I could have said what it was then, or at least I'd have been wrong. Come on, give me the gun. Teddy, I don't know. Just give me the goddamn gun. John had this car, brown Plymouth Roadrunner, that he had totaled seven or eight times and was always hauling into the body shop. After I got the gun from Nipple, we went outside and climbed into John's car. A bunch of people followed us out, sort of like a send-off. It was clear we were embarking on something. I rolled down the window, and in a moment of drunken bravado, I shot the gun into the air. Later on, Nipple told me that as we drove off, he remarked to everyone, well, they're not coming back. Didn't exactly make them no Sadamas. For a while, we just drove around. It was strange. We wound up on Richmond Terrace where my father grew up. You think of these things afterward. Did it mean something? Was it a piece of a puzzle? It's hard to think it was just coincidental. Anyway, there was a bar down there. It was closed. I don't know what time it was, but it must have been past three in the morning. 
You want to go in? Yeah, let's go in. There was a window shaped like a triangle. I put my sleeve over my hand and punched it in, then crawled through the opening, cutting my chest on one of the shards of glass. We were terrible criminals. I mean, total amateurs. John was too big to get through the window, so he stayed outside while I poked around in the dark. You find the cash register? Is there any money in there? Yeah, they left a box full of fucking money. At least get us a bottle of scotch. I grabbed a bottle of Johnny Walker and crawled back out. John guzzled a quarter of the bottle right there on the curb, then got back behind the wheel of the roadrunner. We drove around a while more, finally stopping at a Hess gas station. But this was a weekend night. They'd been busy and the capsule was so full of money that it was almost spilling out of the slot at the top. So we were standing there, the attendant had the hose in his hand, pumping our gas, and I was plucking $20 bills out of the top of this thing. I wasn't even trying to hide what I was doing, and John was acting all silly, cracking up because I was so calm and blatant about it. At some point, the kid who was pumping gas noticed. Today, when I think about it, I feel bad for a kid like that, but at the time, I was in a different place. I didn't have those feelings for anybody. Anyway, I just gave this kid a look, you know, a don't-fuck-with-me look, and he decided not to pursue it, at least not directly. Instead, he headed off into the office where there was a phone. Come on, Teddy, we gotta blow this place. He's calling the cops. John yanked the nozzle out of the gas tank and threw it on the ground while it was still pumping. It snaked around, squirting gas all over the place. I plucked a couple more bills out of the capsule, then got into the car. John already had it started up. The kid saw us and came running out of the office to stop us. I started getting out of the car to confront him, and he ran back inside. Okay. I shut the car door and we were about to leave again, and again he came running out. It was slapstick stuff. This time I took the gun and aimed it at him. He stopped dead in his tracks and hit the deck like he was already shot. He was scared out of his mind. I raised the gun and shot it into the air, except he didn't know. He was face down and whimpering. Half an hour later, John had nearly finished off the bottle of Johnny Walker. We were cruising along Victory Boulevard when he picked up a cop car in the rearview mirror. They were a block behind us. He immediately got all panicky. We're fucked, man. We're fucked, Teddy. Just keep driving. Maybe we should make a run for it. Just keep driving. They don't have their light on. Yeah, you're right. We went a ways like that, maybe a couple of miles, far enough to begin to think maybe it was just a coincidence because they weren't doing anything. Then we came over this ridge at the far end of Victory Boulevard, and any idea we had that we were in the clear exploded in a blaze of what felt like a hundred headlights pointing right at us. Lined up in a phalanx on the street, maybe 300 yards ahead was a roadblock of ten police cars. Holy shit, John said in his high, terrified voice. Oh, fuck. Shut up. The cops had their doors winged open and they were crouched down with guns and rifles drawn. Over the PA, they were shouting, stop the vehicle. John slammed on the brakes. We skidded to a stop, the car fishtailing. By now, there were cop cars behind us, too the one that had been following us, and some others. Don't move. Put your hands where we can see them. It was strange. I felt very calm. My thoughts were clear. I should have been like John, scared and shaky, but I wasn't. I had the gun in my waistband, and I knew what was going to happen. I started to think of where to put the gun, where to hide it. These were seemingly rational thoughts, 
though in reality, given the danger, they were not. At first, I thought I'd put the gun in the visor. I started to raise it, but I could actually hear the rustling of the cops' guns and their uniforms. I could hear their nerves like strings being wound on a guitar. Over the PA, one of them shouted, Don't fucking move. We will shoot you if you move. I must not have listened at first, because they kept screaming, Do not move. We will shoot. John was saying, Teddy, listen to them. For Christ's sakes, listen to them. Something penetrated, because I stopped moving my hands up. Instead, I bent forward and threw the gun under the seat, and again heard that rustle of movement and nervousness. It's amazing that they didn't shoot. I always tell the fighters I train that motion relieves tension. If you don't move, you go to this place where your muscles control you instead of the other way around. And that's what I was hearing. All this motion, the sound of these cops trying not to go to that place. In the next moment, they rushed the car. Hands reached in and pulled us out, throwing us to the ground. One of them cracked me on the head with his fist. Another one said, where is it? I didn't answer, so they started taking the car apart, yelling, where the fuck is the gun? They took the seats out and put them on the sidewalk. They still couldn't find it. I was just lying there, hoping against hope they wouldn't find it, but knowing that they would. It must have been a good five minutes before I heard one of them shout, I've got it. It turned out the trigger of the gun had hooked on a spring under the car seat. It was hanging from the bottom of the seat. The miracle was that when the spring caught the trigger, the gun didn't go off. If that had happened, well, that probably would have been the end of this story. As if getting arrested for a second felony in two days wasn't bad enough, I was also being charged with attempted murder because of that shot I'd fired into the air at the Hess station. It was crazy. I hadn't been shooting at the kid, but that was the charge. At the station house, the cops took me into a back room and began working on me. A kid like you from a good family going off to prison. It's a real shame. As far as they were concerned, there was only one hope for me. If I could supply them with some info on a gun ring they were investigating, maybe the judge would go easy on me. In the space of a couple of days, they twice nailed me with guns, so they thought I must know something. In fact, I did. I knew the names of some of the wise guys who were involved in the ring, just from hanging around the kinds of people I was hanging around with. I said, are the guns you're interested in 38s? And when I said that, all the detectives perked up and drew their chairs closer. What did I tell you, one of them said to the rest. No, the reason I'm asking, I said, is because I don't know anything about 38s. It was a stupid show of smart-ass bravado, and they didn't appreciate it. One of them hit me so hard he knocked me off my chair. You think you're funny? You're a tough guy? Later on, they shoved a piece of paper in front of me. It was a signed statement they'd gotten from John, and another one from Billy from two days earlier. Your pals put everything on you. They said it was all your idea that you got the guns and decided what to rob. Nice friends you got. At first, I refused to look at the statements, but they were smart. They kept moving away, turning their backs, and I would take a peek and see the signatures. They kept working on me, trying to use it. They let me know they were releasing John, that he'd made bail. His bail was much lower than mine because he didn't have to pry arrest like I did. He's going home and you're going to Rikers where you're going to get fucked up the ass by niggas. That doesn't piss you off? You want to just let him get out this way? 
this guy who was supposed to be your friend? I knew they were trying to manipulate me, but at the same time, what they were telling me was true. It made me realize how weak people are and how you can't assume that someone is your friend. Everyone has to be tested. That didn't mean I was going to give up any information to them. From my perspective, that wasn't an option. It didn't mean that I was stronger than John or Billy. It was just that if you don't think there was a choice, then there's no temptation. In a way, I had learned about accountability from my father. The most vivid lesson had come after a fight I'd gotten into where my head was split open with a tie iron. I'd gone to his office, and there were 20 people waiting outside. When the nurse saw me, she took me right in to see him. My father looked at me and said he can wait with everyone else. It was three hours before I got in to see him. I bled all over the waiting room floor. The nurse offered to administer Novocaine, but my father said, no, he doesn't want that. If he's going to live like this, he should know the way this kind of life feels. He put 15 stitches in my head without using painkillers. What I'm trying to say is that in my way of looking at the world, which came in large part from him, it was better to do without the thing that eased your pain, without the Novocaine, or signing a statement, or whatever it was. If you were going to do something, you went in understanding the ground rules. I didn't understand something in which there was a buckling rule. The next morning, John got released, and I got sent to Rikers. They set my bail at $40,000. The news of the arrest was all over the front page of the Staten Island paper. I guess it goes without saying that it was a major embarrassment for my father. I'd finally gotten his attention, but not in a good way. He was furious and refused to pay my bail. My mother wasn't happy either. All the same, she didn't want her son in jail. So she did what a mother does. She said to my father, Either you put up the house as collateral for his bail, or I'm leaving you. In the meantime, I got sent off to Rikers Island. That's the end of Chapter 1. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review if you haven't already. And if you want to pick up the audiobook, be sure to do so on Amazon or iTunes. You can also get it for free with a 30-day trial of Audible. See the link in the show notes for more on that, and we'll be back next week.